0: All right, good to see everyone tonight. Thank you for being here. We're going to take up part eight in the life of Moses. Our series has uh, been called Discovering God's Hand and Heart. And the topic tonight is a question. It was um, a question that Israel had to answer. It's a question that Moses had to answer. And if I may be so bold, it's a question everyone has to answer. In fact, I, I don't know of a time in my life when I feel this question resonating in our lives more than I do right now with all that we've been facing the last seven months or so. And the question is this, is the Lord among us or not? Um, the most destructive, the most destructive element And I talked about this Sunday that has been a part of our culture in the church over the last few months is that word, but we know this is true. Thank you, but we know the Lord promised, but we know this is an issue, but, and I have felt in so many instances that the church is saying well, the Lord has said he's among us, but, so we have to answer that question, is the Lord among us or not? I want to read an extended passage of scripture tonight, and um, I know that you could read it later, but it's almost like we need to refresh our minds to have a setting for what we want to say. So we're going to read a uh, part of chapter 15 in Exodus, and then 16 and 17. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went into the desert of Shur. For three days they traveled in the desert without finding water. When they came to Mara, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. That's why the place is called Mara, because Mara means bitter. And um, if you're here and your name is Molly or your name is Mary, then you say, Man, what a bummer. My name means bitter. Well, it comes from Mara, but in its root, it doesn't emphasize the bitterness. It emphasizes the beauty of water, which is a, a ten-minute explanation. But take courage—you're not destined to bitterness. You're destined to beauty. It was it was the maid of Mara, the maid of the waters, that that name comes from. Uh, so the people grumbled against Moses, saying. What are we to drink? Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. He threw it into the water, and the water became fit to drink. We have all heard sermons about whenever God adds the wood of the cross to life's bitterness, it becomes bearable. I don't know if that's what is meant here, but I think it could very well be a foreshadowing of the cross. Um, There the Lord issued a ruling and instruction for them and put them to the test. He said, if you listen carefully to the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands and keep all his decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. Now, I, I probably don't need to go into this in any detail here, but I don't think what the Lord is saying, if you'll follow me, you won't ever be sick. The diseases he put on the Egyptians were judgments and were heavy chastisements. Uh, chastisements, not even the right word. It was heavy blows from God. And I don't, I don't think that God was saying, and if that's where your faith is, then, then go ahead you know, and live there. But I don't think God was saying, if you follow me, you'll never be sick. He's saying, if you'll follow me, you won't come under the hand of judgment the way the Egyptians did. Um, He said, I'm the Lord who heals you. Then they came to Elim, where there were 12 springs and 70 palm trees, and they camped there near the water. Going on to chapter 16, the whole Israelite community set out from Elim and came to the desert, of um, we, it looks like sin, but we, it's either Zine or 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 Zen. Uh, it's pronounced a little bit differently, which is between Elim and Sinai on the fifteenth day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. Now they go for without water for three days. God provides them water, and now it's thirty days later. Okay, uh, in the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. They had forgotten what the food of Egypt was like. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day. And gather enough for that day, and this way I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. Now we're going to talk about what that means. I will test them to see what they are made of. On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in, and that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, (coughs) "Excuse me. In the evening you will know it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. And in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we that you should grumble against us? And, and, and that wasn't Moses saying, hey, who do you think you are to grumble against us? He says, we're not the ones you, you're grumbling against. We're nobodies. Your grumbling is against the Lord. Moses also said, you will know that it was the Lord when he gives you meat to eat in the evening and all the bread you want in the morning, because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we? You are not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses told Aaron, say to the entire Israelite community, come before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. While Aaron and King James murmuring, that's the word that we are most familiar with, While Aaron was speaking to the whole Israelite community, they looked toward the desert and there was the glory of the Lord appearing in the cloud. The Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Do you get the feeling this section's about grumbling? Okay. (laughs) Tell them at twilight you will eat meat and in the morning you will be filled with bread. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. That evening quail came and covered the camp and in the morning... There was a layer of dew around the camp. When the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, what is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, it is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Everyone is to gather as much as they uh, need. Take an omer for each person. That's roughly a quart. Like it'd be what you could put in a quart jar. And um, if, uh, one for each person you have in your tent. The Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much, some little. And when they measured it by the omer, the one who gathered much did not have too much. And the one who gathered little did not have too little. Everyone had gathered just as much as they needed. Then Moses said to them, No one is to keep any of it until morning. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept part of it until morning, but it was full of maggots and began to smell. So Moses was angry with them. Every morning, everyone gathered as much as they needed, and when the sun grew hot, it melted away. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much, two omers, two quarts for each person, and the leaders of the community came and reported this to Moses. He said to them, "'This is what the Lord commanded. "'Tomorrow is to be a day of Sabbath rest, "'a holy Sabbath to the Lord.' So bake what you want to bake and boil what you want to boil. Save whatever is left and keep it till morning. So they saved it until morning as Moses commanded, and it did not stink or get maggots in it. Eat it today, Moses said, because today is a Sabbath to the Lord. You will not find any of it on the ground today. Six days you are to gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will not be any. Let me pause to remind you what I know we've covered but um, just in case you're new to the church or new to our Wednesday night classes, um, the principle of the Sabbath was not that you could not do a physical thing. Um, the principle of the Sabbath, in fact, I grew up in a setting and it, it, was, it, was, not, it was not oppressive. Sometimes it was inconvenient, but it wasn't oppressive. You couldn't do anything that not only was work, but you couldn't do anything that was recreational on Sunday. Uh, I grew up on the beach, but you didn't go to the beach on Sunday. You didn't fish on Sunday. You didn't play ball on Sunday. You didn't um, uh, basically growing up on Sunday. Um, well, let me put it this way: that that was the the culture of our of our church. My parents let me play on Sunday. Uh, We were a worldly family, but uh, um, basically what we did on Sunday, there there were some things I wasn't allowed to do on Sunday. We would have never dreamed of going to the beach on Sunday or never dreamed of uh, going, you know, bowling on Sunday or something like that. We came home and our goal was to rest, which now seems like a really good idea. Or we would drive around and visit our relatives in the area. I mean, that was just what we did. We, I know it's not imaginable to some of you. You're so young. But it used to be that Sunday afternoon drive was a big deal. And we'd just get in the car and go. Um, and the, the, But the principle behind the Sabbath was don't do your work that you do on the other days because it was a statement of faith that you were saying, just like with the manna, we don't work for seven days. We give a day to the Lord because the Lord will do more with six days and a day honoring him than we can do in seven days living in our way. It's the same principle as the tithe. God says, keep 90%, but give me a 10th part. Uh, And it it was God, it wasn't that God needs heaven to be funded. It was that God said, I need you to know that when you partner with me, whether it's in your time or in your treasure, you can do more with me than you can without me. So they were, these people were slaves. They had, they, they were coming off of a seven day work week and they had to learn, you know, it's hard to learn to rest Sometimes. Nevertheless, some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather it, but they found none. Then the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commands and my instructions? Bear in mind that the Lord has given you the Sabbath, and that is why on the sixth day he gives you bread for two days. See, they would learn this when they went into the land. They would learn that in the Sabbath year, the seventh year, they were to give the land rest. They were not to plant. They would find, what they found is that in the sixth year, they had almost, it was, it was like, well, it wasn't almost, it was a double harvest. What they needed for the next year would be given to them in the sixth year. And, um, that was just God's way of saying, when you live with me, you don't live by the the rules of this kingdom. You live by the rules of my kingdom. Um, That's why he gives on the sixth day, he gives bread for two days. Everyone's to stay where they are on the seventh day. No one is to go out. So the people rested on the seventh day. The people of Israel called the bread manna. It was white like coriander seed and tasted like wafers made with honey. And Moses says, this is what the Lord has commanded. And then he repeats it, you know, take the the omer of manna, keep it for the generations to come so that they can see the bread I gave you to eat in the wilderness when I brought you out of Egypt. So Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer or a quart of manna in it. Then place it before the Lord to be kept for generations to come. As the Lord commanded Moses, Aaron put the manna with the tablets of the covenant law so that it might be preserved. And the Israelites ate manna 40 years until they came to a land that was settled. They ate manna until they reached the border of Canaan. And when they go into the land a generation later, we find that they had manna just as the Lord promised up until the day they went into the land. And on that day, the the manna stopped. Now, let's read a few more verses. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of Zion, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Moses replied, How do you, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and our livestock die of thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, what am I to do with these people? They're almost ready to stone me. The Lord answered Moses, "Go out in front of the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel. Take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock, and water will come out of it for the people to drink." You know, there are some liberal theologians, and and this is true. They point out that there is uh, rock formations in Israel in the desert where it's just very thin shale, just very thin rock, and with the passing of time and the rising and, and, and abatement of rivers, water has been trapped in rocks. And a shepherd, if he can find the right kind of rock, can, can strike the rock and will find water in there, sometimes gallons of water. And they said, this was no miracle. Moses just in his 40 years of shepherding had learned this old trick and he struck a rock where he knew water would be and watered the people of Israel. Uh, do you remember how many people there were there was no reservoir that would have contained enough water for the people to drink. It was, it was God taking something that was natural to some degree, but then expanding it. It's like he could have created the fish and the bread, but instead he took what was given to him and multiplied it. Well, I think he did the same uh, with, with, the, with the water. Uh, strike the rock water come out will come out of it for the people to drink so Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel and he called the place Massah and Meribah because the Israelites quarrelled and because they tested the Lord saying here's our text is the Lord among us or not now father i ask you to help us in the little bit of time we've got left to 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 maybe answer this question for ourselves because this isn't just a night we want to study about moses this is a night we want to confront our fears this is a night we want to confront our uncertainties lord it's not a night that i'm going to give an altar call and have everybody that's had a doubt to run to the altar and receive the chastisement of the lord father every one of us have doubted at one moment or another I, i i suppose probably during the last seven or eight months Some of us may have felt like we've gone up and down and and in and out and upside down over and over again trying to wrap our heads around what's happening to our country and the world. Father, that's not what this is about, but I hope it can be a reminder that'll come to us the next time we're tested where we'll settle the issue, is the Lord among us or not? Lord, tonight I want us to leave with the decision Solid in our heart, the Lord is among us. The Lord is with us. He has not left us alone. He's never sent us out without him. Lord, it's so elementary that, it's, that it seems almost, almost childish. But, oh, Lord, how we need to understand. How we need to understand that the Lord is among us. And you will be our help. We ask you to help us wherever we're weak tonight. Help us. We pray in Jesus name. Now there's three basic things. um, I want us to understand tonight. Uh, Number one, I want us to understand that they entered with singing. Number two, I want us to understand that they endured testing. And the third thing, unfortunately, is that they failed to learn. Um, I, I want you to know, uh, failure is always an option. Gene Kranz wrote a book that I love. It was about the uh, Apollo 13 mission. And he said, failure is not an option. And he talked about the attitude that was prevalent in those days in, in NASA, in the, in the 60s and 70s. Um, failure is not an option. But He said, I don't, in in his book, he said, I don't want to be misunderstood. Failure is not an option was our philosophy, but we had failures. He talked about the death of three astronauts on the launch pad uh, before the first Apollo vessel went up into space. He talked about um, the various troubles and trials that they faced. And he realized that even though failure we declared failure to not be an option. Failure was a reality. And he said, we had to walk that line. We had to walk that line between saying failure may come, but it will not come because we gave up. It will not be because we surrendered to the inevitable. And that, that is something that I think we really need to understand. God hasn't promised us that we won't see difficulty and trouble. Um, I want to say this the right way. God has not even promised that we won't lose some battles, but he has promised that we will win the war. And what we need to do is to understand that uh, um, when we say failure is not an option in our serving the Lord, what what we're saying is, The Lord is my shepherd and I'll follow him always. I'll follow him wherever he goes. Even if it goes through the valley of the shadow of death, even if it's through low places or high places, I'm going to follow him. But defeat won't touch my life because I give up. I'm not going to give up. Um, That's what I want us to wrap our heads around. Now, when I say they started with singing, this goes back to them coming across the Red Sea and, um, and, and I've preached with humility because I can't preach like he did, but David Wilkerson's message on the right song, wrong side. And we talked about the, uh, the, the need to sing the victory of the Lord before we get across instead of waiting until God delivers us. But boy, when they did get it, what a celebration there was. Phenomenal singing. And not only did they sing, uh, you know, I will sing unto the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider thrown into the sea. Boy, they sang and they walked along the seashore and saw the bodies of Pharaoh and his army washed up on the shore. It was a day of, of great exhilaration and great somberness as well. And we think that they learned a lesson. And loved ones, I don't want us to be too hard on Israel because we're just like them. We, we share in their victories, we share in their defeats, and, and we need to be careful, but I mean, we joke about it sometime, you know. Um, we, we say, boy, what a, if, God, if God parted the ocean for me, I'd never doubt again. Well, that's what they said. and It didn't, it didn't take him but three days um, to, to begin to have trouble, and uh, that's why we have Wednesday night service, you know, from Sunday to Wednesday, you know, it'll hold us over till we can get back to the weekend. You know, and um, at least that's what my pastor always said, and I believed him. But please understand, we need those songs and we need those victories. We need to we need to thank God for every victory we experience in life. We we should never fall into the trap of saying, "Well, he got me out, but I don't know what's going to happen next." You know, and you know, and uh, we had a lady in our church, I, my, my mom, I thought she was serious. She said, I, th- "I think sister so-and-so's favorite verse is, "Don't count your chickens before they hatch, before they hatch." And I, I thought, that's, that's a good verse. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have that for a memory verse. But the sister she was talking about, it, it didn't matter what God did for her. there was always a reason to not celebrate. You know, it probably won't last. It's probably too good to be true. Well, God gave me some money, but it'll just be eaten up with bills. And um, uh, no, we we need to learn to celebrate. But what we need to do is to learn. And boy, it's hard. I know it is hard. We need to learn to sing songs in dark places, and not just not just in those high spots. So don't forget, we all tend to move from one thing to another, and hopefully we enter with singing. But when they finished singing, within a matter of days, they began to be tested. They endured testing. Um, And and let me, um, forgive me because I know I've said this before. I don't always remember what I said on Sunday and Wednesday and in chapel at SCSL, so forgive me if I talked about this recently, but Israel was given 10 opportunities, 10 opportunities to believe God and to trust him. Now, God doesn't expect us to be perfect in the world of baseball. If you hit a, if you hit a baseball and get on base three out of 10 times, you'll go in the hall of fame. I mean, in in my lifetime, nobody, nobody has done it four times out of 10, not in my lifetime. So three out of 10 uh, will get you into the hall of fame. So God, I don't think was saying, you got to pass all the tests. You say, well, then why did he give them 10 tests? Well, I think he was just trying to get them to pass one. But they, they failed every single one of them. I'm talking about as a people. Now there were, there were folks in the nation of Israel that did not fail. Joshua and Caleb, Uh, they didn't fail, but as a nation, Israel failed. And we need to understand that um, it's important for us to say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. But we also need to understand that not only do we come under the scrutiny of God, but so do churches. Um, That's why I believe the New Testament tells us that you shouldn't want to be a teacher uh, because, I mean... It doesn't say it that way. it's it says, don't think that um, being a teacher is something everybody ought to jump at. He, he says because understand this, the teachers, the pastors will have a greater scrutiny when they stand before the Lord because just like a non- pastor or just like a non-teacher, we every pastor will stand before the Lord. but I, I think I think it's a very sobering thing to understand that. A pastor, a teacher, not only stands before the Lord for themselves, but for their church, for their class, or whatever their, you know, a a professor's um, entourage at at a seminary or something. Um, We're going going to be tested. And the purpose of the testing is threefold. Uh, Deuteronomy 8.2 tells us why. God said, I led you into the wilderness, and I tested you. There were three reasons. He said, number one, I tested you in order to humble you. Now, we, we need to understand, loved ones, that God does not humiliate us, but he humbles us. And there's a big difference between humiliation and humbling. Um, humbling can make you feel like the most loved person on planet Earth. When you realize that... Somebody put it this way, and, I, and, and, and I've remembered this all my married life. I've tried to remember this. Um, I, I read um, a secular writer that said, perhaps the greatest sign of selfless love is when you wake up in the middle of a cold night and realize your spouse has gotten out from under the covers. And without waking them, without making a big deal, you you cover them again and you make them warm. And they were saying that um, uh, to be loved that way is is, is something that is beyond human comprehension. When God humbles us, we feel loved that way. We feel loved that way. I remember one time um, when I was... Growing up, I was in a situation with a fight with somebody that was considerably bigger than me and older than me, probably five or six years older than me, uh, and, and I, I thought, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get myself kicked here, um, but uh, you know how it is. It's important to a kid to duke it out, and I, I just I thought, well, if he's going to whip me, I'm going to make sure it takes a while. And, and he got kind of lost his bravado, and I thought, yeah, all right, yeah. He, he, he knows a champ when he sees him. And he kind of backed down, and uh, I thought, uh, yeah. And then he went away bad-mouthing, but he went away, and I thought, boy, I took care of him. Only to turn around and see my big brother had come to pick me up there at the community center. And he was bigger than the other guy. Well, that didn't humiliate me, but that humbled me. But I tell you what it also did. It made me feel like I had the best big brother on planet earth. Made me really feel loved. So God will humble us, but the purpose of his humbling is to help us understand his great love for us. To help us understand his great love for us. That's what It means for us to be humbled. Uh, It means that things get put in perspective. It means that our strength is put in perspective. Our abilities are put in perspective. Everything about us is suddenly put in perspective. And God humbles us in order to put our life back in perspective. And we find out we're not secure because of our job but a job is given to us to aid in our security by the Lord. So he said, I I put you through the wilderness in order to humble you. He said, I wanted you to know that your success is due to me. Are are, are you hearing me tonight? That's why uh, when Jesus went into the wilderness, um, Jesus went into the wilderness and the first scripture that he leaned on was the one that says man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from, from God. Um, the purpose of the wilderness, this is why every one of us go into the wilderness. We've said this over and over again. Every Christian must do their time in the wilderness because only the wilderness can humble us to see that we live, we rise, we fall all by the grace of God. He said, I wanted to humble you. He said, number two, I wanted to test you. Now, testing is basically this idea that we go through things, many of which we would not choose to go through if it were left up to us. But we go through the testing, and this is the thing about God. There's there's, uh, two words in the New Testament, and sometimes in English they're, they're they're interchangeably translated, but uh, the word uh, perazo is generally the word that's used for tempt, to tempt you. It's what the devil does. And dokimazo is the word that's generally used for test. The word perazo and its forms indicate a a piercing, a searching, a way to bring you down. Um, I don't watch boxing anymore. I've never liked martial arts. I I, I think it's barbaric. But when I was growing up, I loved the old classic fights like Ali and Frazier and that sort of thing. And what you would find in those uh, boxing matches, when when the boxers would come out, they knew each other's strengths, they knew each other's weaknesses. And I don't know if you remember going into a fight, their biceps were measured, their necks were measured, their chest. I mean, you knew everything about them. But when the bell rang and that first round started, you saw something that was invariably true. They would approach each other and you'd find a tentative jab here or a, maybe, a, maybe a flurry of punches. But basically it was said that the first minute to a minute and a half was just spent this way. The boxers came out to just p- try to pierce, try to find what is, what is this person's weakness that maybe I didn't know about that's what the enemy does. He comes to find a weakness in us. That's why Jesus told his disciples just before his crucifixion, Satan comes and finds nothing in me. He was saying, there's nothing in me for him to latch onto. There's no weakness in my stance or in my my posture. He says, Satan has pierced Satan has investigated, Satan has moved in and he has not been able to land a punch. But that's what the enemy does. He'll come and he'll throw a punch, He'll, he'll, he'll try a flurry, he'll try a combination. He'll dance around, he'll do whatever because he wants to see where can I bring this person down. That's Perazzo, that's temptation. And that's why the Bible says that God cannot be tempted with evil and neither does he tempt any man. God never tempts us. But boy, does he test us. And this is the thing about testing. Perazzo is with the goal, with the stated purpose of bringing you down. But Docimadzo is where the stated purpose of bragging on you and showing what you've learned. Any teacher, unless they just are demon-possessed or something, you know, I've had some of those. Any teacher, and I'm serious, I mean, I'm joking about that, but I'm serious about this. Any teacher that understands teaching does not get any thrill out of a student failing an exam. Because really, when you get right down to it, It might not be the teacher's fault, but when a student fails an exam, the teacher has to say, I failed to teach. I mean, it may be their fault, but I failed to teach. No teacher in their right mind takes a delight in failing a student. I don't think, and and yes, my degree was in teaching, so I can say this. I, I don't even think it's healthy to say, well, you know, it's just gonna happen. You're gonna have a certain percent that fail and you're gonna have a certain percent that ace it and everybody else is gonna be in the middle. No, a teacher's not gonna settle with that. A teacher's not gonna say, yeah, out of my 30 students, three are going to fail. That's just the way of the world. No, they want to do everything they can to show at the end of the year, I have moved my fourth grader from, from third grade capabilities to fifth grade capabilities. And that's what God does. You remember when he talked about people giving excuses and he said, um, everybody that's invited to the wedding doesn't come. He says, some will say, I've just bought a team of oxen and I have to prove them. That word's documazo. He was saying, I just bought a team of oxen and I have to test them. In other words, he was saying, I don't know if these oxen are any good or not. They're probably going to fail, but I'm going to put them through the paces. No, he wouldn't have bought them in the first place if he didn't have confidence that they had abilities. So when God takes you through a test, it's to prove your worth, not to find out if you have worth. It's to... Understand this, when God puts you to the test, it's God's vote of confidence in you. You're ready for this. You know, I'm not. Yeah, we are. And I tell you, I know what it's like to go through a test that I said, Lord, can I tell you, I prayed this? Lord, what are you thinking? What are you thinking? But He knows what we're ready for, and He knows what we're not ready for. And God loves us so much. You remember, we we read this, I think, a couple of weeks ago. Whenever they went into the promised land, you remember that it says that God did not lead them in a direct path, but they went into the wilderness and then down to the south. And you remember, they, they came from the west, but they entered from the east. And the reason, we talked about this, was that God said they're not ready to face the Philistines. They're not ready to face them. If the Philistines are the first enemy they face, they will turn around and go back to Egypt. So he brought them around the other way. And those enemies were fierce, but they weren't Philistia. And there's there's a lot of things. That's why, loved ones, that's why sometimes we say, Lord, if you have an issue with this in my life, why haven't you told me? I've been serving you for 15 years. You've never brought this up before. Well, it may be you weren't ready for the test before, but you're ready now. You're ready now. So God says, I'm going to test you. He says, I'm going to give you a test. And he says, I want you to know you, the fact that I'm letting you be tested is proof that you are able to pass the test. Now we know that God does lead us into things that are over our head, but what we lack, he gives us in grace. So he said, I'm going to humble you. I'm going to teach you that your life is dependent on me. He said, I'm going to test you. I'm going to show you how to walk out this grace that's in your life. And the third thing he said seems odd in Deuteronomy 8, depending on the, the translation that you use. He said, I tested you so that I might know whether you would obey my laws or not. Now that, that seems like an odd thing for God to say. God Almighty who knows everything, I mean, is he really saying, David, I'm going to send you through this test because I don't know if you can handle it or not, but I need to know. No, you've got to understand that we see this, it's a Hebraism, we see it a lot in the Old Testament. God says, um, now I know that Abraham will not withhold anything from me. God knew that, but Abraham needed to know that and we needed to know that. And when God says he does something so that he might know um, consistently, you find it in scripture over and over again. What he is saying is not, I have a question that I need answered. He's saying, there is a fact that I need attested. There's a fact that I need proven. He says, so he says, I've test you so that I might know your heart. In, in our Western way of thinking, what God is saying is, I've tested you so that I could show the truth of what I'm walking you through. It's never a, I don't know if you got it or not, Justin. It's, Justin, I'm going to show my grace. I'm going to show my sufficiency. I'm going to show my power. But, Justin, the way I'm going to have to do it is by testing you. And when that in you rises to the surface, man, it, it, it's going to, you're going to know it. Your family's going to know it. Your, your community's going to know it. God says, I'm testing you because I want to humble you. I'm testing you because I, I want to, uh, to strengthen you. I want you to live it out. And I'm testing you because I want people to see that what you're living makes a difference. Um, my pastor used to say this, and I love it. He, it may not be relevant in our age because so much is digital, But my pastor used to say, the Bible that's falling apart usually belongs to someone who isn't. The Bible that is falling apart usually belongs to someone uh, who isn't. Now, there are divine cycles. They went through them. Um, We tend in our walk with the Lord, Boy, I need to hurry, but we tend to begin with abundance. Uh, Chuck Swindoll said, this is when we look up. And we move from abundance to expectation. Well, God has given me so much. You know, I will sing unto the Lord for his triumph gloriously. Horse and rider thrown into the sea, abundance. Therefore, everything ought to be smooth sailing. Expectation, this is where we're looking ahead. Swindoll says, number three, we slip into disappointment. He said, this happens when we look down. And after disappointment, we're at a crossroads where he said the next step, if we don't catch it, is complaint. This is when we look back. And everything that used to be looks so much better. And um, then God comes through and he gives us provision. This is when we look up again and hopefully look around. Now, that's what God wants, okay? Testing is normal. You and I are going to be tested but the, the sad thing about Israel, and it's, it's, it, it can be true of us as individuals or churches, denominations, Israel failed to learn. Uh, the test they faced was manifested as time issues, hunger, and thirst. These are the three we read about. Um, the first struggle has to do with time. They're three days without water and they're in trouble. Now, that was a short test for a couple of reasons. I think God was introducing them to the concept of being tested. And also, we can't go much more than three days without water. So it was something God had to show up. He had to show up. The second struggle, first one had to do with time. Um, uh, well, I mean, let me say this. Three days, God met their need. But now they're faced with hunger hunger. And they said, okay, y'all, just hang loose. Remember what God did? He gave us water in three days. He'll give us food within three days. But now they're in day 45 in the wilderness and they're struggling. Now the issue is not only with time, but also with lack. The two biggest ways we're tested, generally speaking, are over the issue of time. Is God among us or not? And why isn't he doing something? If God's all-powerful, Why isn't he showing off? And then number two, it has to do with lack. They were hungry and they were thirsty. Now, this was their opportunity. Again, I'm not judging them. I'm not throwing any stones because I know what it's like to tell God he has no concept of time. I know what it's like to tell God that, you know, you said you'd give us handfuls on purpose, but you haven't given me anything even by accident. And of course, that was never wrong. Uh, I mean, I, that was never right. I was wrong. Um, I, I remember the when I was at my lowest point, my first church. It was it, it, everything seemed to be falling apart. Uh, I went there. It was a it was a church of a, about a hundred, and I had worked hard for for uh, a couple of years and did the best I could and. We had worked it to where we had about 80. And uh, I remember praying. I said, Lord, I know that we reap what we sow. But I said, I haven't lived long enough to be reaping what I'm reaping right now. This, this is just not right. And we have, a cho- we have a choice then to either throw ourselves into the love of the Lord. Or we, at that point, we tend to resort to grumbling and quarreling. Here are the life lessons that we'll end with tonight. Here's number one. Let's remember this. History is a great teacher, but few people really learn from it. Um, Somebody used to say that uh, experience is the best teacher. Again, I'm quoting my pastor. He said, experience is the best teacher, especially someone else's experience. He said, he told me, and I I just didn't sink in for years. He said, experience is the best teacher, but you can learn from the mistakes of others. You don't have to make those mistakes yourself. Um, I, I didn't learn that very well. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, this is Paul writing to the Corinthians, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized uh, into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them. That rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. And every time I read this, I am amazed that Christian pastors today are telling folks that the Old Testament has no bearing on our life. Here's Christian life lesson number two. Humility is a prerequisite to true spiritual learning. We will never grow in the grace of God, not the way we think we're growing, until we learn that all of our hope is in Him, all of our trust is in Him, all of our strength is in Him. Humility is a prerequisite to true spiritual learning. I had a professor that said this, and to be quite frank with you, I I didn't know if I believed it or not. It it just seemed like too much of a rule. He said, "Never trust people who do not limp." And he was talking about Jacob meeting God and God touching his limp, and he never walked the same again. He said, we Pentecostals are only interested in being holy leapers. He said, we need to be holy limpers. Um, he, He said, until a person has walked with God long enough that they have learned how frail and dependent on the Lord they are. He says, they may have insight, they may have gifts, but not until they start limping. Is God really able to use them the way he wants to? I didn't believe that, but I agree wholeheartedly now. I agree, I agree wholeheartedly. That's why, I mean, I don't mean to be offensive, but that's why a priest had to be about 30 years of age before he began his ministry. I, I read that and I thought, Lord, I, you're, you're missing out on the, on the years of their strength but there's some strength that's not measured in muscle mass or your ability to lift or push or pull. That leads us to number three. Maturity is always married to time. Um, You know, wine, cheese, Christians, we need time to mature, and maturity is always married to time. Always married to time. Now, I know of of people that are mature beyond their years. But that doesn't mean they got maturity earlier because they're going to be much more mature later. But maturity is always married to time. And here's number four. None of us fail utterly. God keeps testing us until we pass. I'm... uh, I'm reminded of a story that was told about a football player at the university or uh, Florida State University and he had academic problems, but he was a superstar. I don't think this is true, but it demonstrates what I'm talking about. He said, you're having trouble passing your social studies classes. I'm gonna, we're going to give you a comprehensive exam in social studies. And if if you can pass that comprehensive exam, you'll be able to play. We'll we'll pass you for the courses. You'll be able to play. And uh, he came in and they they said, this comprehensive exam is going to be one question, one question only. Now, Florida State University is in Tallahassee, Florida, the capital of Florida. And they said... uh, Here's your question. Your football career, probably NFL career, is on the line. Here's your question. Where is the capital of Florida? He lives in Tallahassee. He attends school in Tallahassee. He drives by the capital every day. And he looked at them and he said, Quincy. And the coach drops his head and just says, <sighs> the athletic director says, well, uh, I think that's adequate. He says, everybody knows Quincy is only about 20 miles from Tallahassee and 20 from hundred is 80 and 80 is a passing grade. Now, that's not true. It, it, was, it was begun by Florida Gator fans, I think. And God doesn't cook the books like that. But what do we do when we fail? God says, take a lap and we'll have another test. He keeps, he keeps testing us until we pass. Why? Because you are destined for glory. You are destined for greatness. Now, you say, well, what if I never pass the test? You're still, you're still going to heaven. You just, you just uh, your rewards might be a little slender when you get there. But God has said when we come to him, he promises to get us to where we're going. Again, we know we've talked about this. We're saved by grace but then we don't stay saved by works. It's by grace. And God is able to keep bringing us the test over and over and over again because he knows that eventually we'll pass it. Now, I want to tell you this. We don't have to take the test over and over again because the test is too hard and God has to dumb it down. If God tests you, you were ready to pass it then. But for whatever reason, unbelief, doubt, carnality, lack of faith, for whatever reason, we may fail the test. But God loves you so much, He keeps bringing you back. He keeps bringing you back. You say, well, but they didn't get to go into the promised land. Maybe, maybe, it's, maybe there's terminal failure. Well, I just I know this is going to be controversial to some of you, but the promised land wasn't heaven. The promised land was what they ought to be living in. There's no indication to think that those people went to hell because they didn't go into the land. In fact, I believe every Christian will go to heaven, but not every Christian inherits the land. Not every Christian. You say, well, I thought the land was heaven. Oh, I hope not. There's giants there. There's mean people there. There's battles there. No, the, the land, the promised land wasn't heaven. The promised land was, an, was, a, was a symbol of the way we should be living our lives. I don't think we need to stay up tonight worrying whether or not we're going to heaven if we've given our hearts to the Lord. If you're not sure, settle it. Just settle it. Tonight you can know that you're going to heaven because Jesus said, whoever comes to me, I will never cast them away. And he says that when we accept him as our Lord, we pass at that moment, not some future day, but we pass from death into life. He said, if you're a believer, you have eternal life, not that you're going to get it, but you have it. Well, the question isn't whether or not we're going to heaven as Christians. The question is whether we're going to inherit the land, whether we're going to walk in the victory that God has ordained that we have victory over our temptations, victory over our besetting sins. Um, You say, but Pastor, you've always told me that uh, uh, God loves me just as I am. He does. He loves us just as we are. And he loves us so much that he doesn't want us to remain as we are. We're growing in grace. Father, as we end our service tonight, we're out of time, but... I ask you, number one, if there's anyone listening online or if there's anyone here tonight that does not know you as Lord and Savior, as the forgiver of their sins, I ask in Jesus' name that you will give them the grace either to call the church, uh, call the church tomorrow or call a Christian friend tonight, um, or if they're here, to get with a pastor before they leave. And... um, Say, I want to know that Jesus is my Lord. Uh, Father, um, I I, I, I think some of us feel like there's a, a cancer in our soul that just won't heal, that won't clear up. And just when we think we've got it under control, it flares up again. But Father, you are able to take us into a land where we know victory over every besetting sin victory over alcohol, victory over unhealthy relationships, victory over jealousy and unforgiveness, all of that is found at the cross. And Lord, we used to sing that song, there's room at the cross for you. Though millions have come, there's still room for one. There's room at the cross for you. Thank you that we can come to know you as Lord and Savior. I pray that you would give us confidence, I pray that you would give us assurance. And I pray that we would begin to inherit the land because this life is joy unspeakable and full of glory. Do your work and give us the victory that you died to give us. And we ask you to do it. Help us. Lord, help us to come to the end of ourselves so that our strength is found in you. We don't need a counseling session, probably. We don't need somebody to tell us what we already know, probably. What we need to do is say, Lord, I believe you. Now help me to live it out. Help me to walk it out. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for being here tonight. God bless you and uh, just fellowship with one another and don't forget your kids before you go home.